0: This is probably not news to you, but we live in a society of increasing diversity, particularly in our cities. You will meet people with backgrounds and traditions and religions and languages and clothings and families from all corners of the map. And it's actually this diversity that is considered to be a fundamental aspect of the American spirit, right? If you just, I don't know if you guys are into the Olympics, but like if you watch I think the coming, the Summer Olympics are in Paris this coming, uh, this coming rotation. And if you watch like the parade of nations, right? You see, uh, you see Japan come in and, and you see Kenya come in and you see all these nations. But typically when you see America enter, it's this mosaic, right? Of all kinds of people and, and, and languages and ethnicities. And I think that most of us would affirm that an inclusive posture of respect and humility and tolerance towards others in a pluralistic culture is something worth protecting and celebrating. No culture is superior to others. Like for example, forks are not better than chopsticks. English is not better than Japanese, is it? But what about diverse religious beliefs? The question I want us to consider here as it relates to exclusivism, and pluralism is essentially, is it wrong to claim that one religion is superior to the rest? In our pluralistic cultural moment, such a claim not only feels ignorant and naive, but it actually feels dangerous and oppressive. Exclusive insights to God evokes images of forced conversions of the infidels, or murderous wars between the Catholics and the Protestants. But that is the claim of religious exclusivism. It is the belief that my version of God and salvation is right and any variation that contradicts mine is wrong. Now, I don't think I have to tell you just how appalling that position has become. Joseph Renzo declares, quote, "...ethically..." religious exclusivism has the morally repugnant result of making those who have privileged knowledge or who are intellectually astute a religious elite while penalizing those who happen to have no access to the putatively correct religious view or who are incapable of advanced understanding. And as such, he concludes that exclusivism is, quote, neither tolerable nor any longer intellectually honest in the context of our contemporary knowledge of other faiths. In his book, Religious Diversity, Wilfred Cantel Smith shares a similar sentiment, writing, quote, Except at the cost of insensitivity or delinquency, it is morally not possible actually to go out into the world and say to devout, intelligent, fellow human beings, we believe that we know God and we are right. You believe that you know God and you are totally wrong. I think evangelical scholar David Clark is correct in noting that claiming religious exclusivism is like flapping a red flag before a bull, right? Even, Even the term exclusivism generates hostility, right? And so in place of the dark and divisive evils of exclusivism arises a bright and uniting alternative, namely pluralism. This is the humble claim that all religions lead to God or to salvation. There's no right or wrong one here. Instead, each religion is a unique path to the same destination. After all, as the bumper sticker says so astutely, my God is too big for any one religion. So in this workshop, I'd like us to consider the promises and the perils of pluralism. But before we proceed, allow me to make a few preliminary clarifications. First of all, pluralism as a term can be used in a number of ways, and they're they're related, but they're distinct. So first, it can be used as a factual claim. This is what D.A. Carson calls empirical pluralism. This is the observation that we live in a diverse cultural context. It's, It's descriptive. It's just not disputed. It's just the fact that in our society, we are in a pluralistic culture, but it can also be used as a legal reality, otherwise known as cherished pluralism. Used in in this way, the term champions the legal protections of diversity in order to secure and ensure our freedoms. So think about the First Amendment, right? Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, separation of church and state. This sense of pluralism encourages dialogue in the open square of ideas and opinions. We're not trying to cancel or silence a view that we don't agree with. That would be considered cherished pluralism, and I think that most of us would ascribe to that too. But that's not the pluralism I want to consider in our workshop here today. Instead, I want to look at a third use of the term, which is described either as philosophical or religious pluralism. And that is pluralism as a philosophical theory, as an ideology that embraces all religions as equally valid, Useful and true, and that leads me to my second point of clarification, and that is this: pluralism is not polytheism. So you've you've heard of polytheism, many gods. Pluralism is not merely compiling all of the gods of the world religions and adding them to their ever-expanding pantheon of gods. They're not saying, yeah, we'll add Zeus, yeah, we'll add, you know, we'll add Allah, Yahweh. All they're they're actually making a statement about religion that asserts that no belief is superior to another. Instead, each religion is describing the same God or ultimate reality from their unique culturally historically shaped perspective. Here's how a real-life religious pluralist states it in his own words, quote, All religions are equal and valid paths to one divine reality, unquote. And such a position is illustrated perhaps most vividly in the well-worn parable of the blind men and the elephant. Have any of you guys heard of that? It has Hindu origins, but it's been adopted as a fitting illustration of pluralism. So here's how the parable goes. There are a number of blind men groping around in the dark, feeling their way to try and describe this elephant in the room. One of them stumbles upon his tusk and says, "God, this elephant is like a spear. Another grabs his trunk and says, no, this elephant is like a hose. The ear, no, is this elephant is like a giant leaf, or or, or the, maybe it's the tail, and it's the elephant's like a rope, or maybe it's the the body, or maybe it's the the arms, or all different descriptions. But we look at that and say, ironically, that what they're all describing the same elephant, and so it kind of leaves you with this with this feeling where you just kind of shake your head and, and ironically say they're they're trying to convince each other, they're trying to argue about the same thing. They're describing the same elephant. So in this illustration, God is the elephant. And the blind men are the religious exclusivists, right? The Muslims got the trunk, the Christians got the tusk, the Buddhist has the foot, the Sikh has the tail. And we're saying, guys, uh, you're all describing the same thing. Well, full disclosure, I'm one of those clueless exclusivists groping around in the dark trying to describe this elephant. And so I think it's helpful for us to consider. What I'd like us to do then is to respond to this pluralistic uh, assumption and try to make a case for Christian religious exclusivism. And the way I wanna do that is by defending religious exclusivism against its sharpest criticism. So I would like to scrutinize some of the most common claims against exclusivism, you know, to, to, to offer a defense for the reasons that exclusivism is in our cultural moment out of vogue, at least in our geographical cultural moment, and uh, see if those claims have any merit. But we're, we're gonna play both sides of the ball. We're not just gonna play defense we're also going to turn the accusation of pluralism back on itself and measure pluralism against its own standard. And when we do this, I think what you will see and I think what will be shown is that actually pluralism falls into its own trap on many accounts. It is, as Alvin Plantinga puts it, it is hoist with its own petard. A Petard is like a medieval bomb they would use to ch- open the gates and it blows up in their face. And so here are five of the most compelling charges against religious exclusivism. I'll present them and then I'll encourage you to give me your thoughts, whether you find it compelling or whether you find uh, some chinks in the armor, all right? So here's the first most common accusation against religious exclusivism. Again, religious exclusivism is the claim that there is a right way to God, that my understanding of God as he has revealed himself is right and any other religion that contradicts that is then by necessity wrong. The first is that exclusivism is arrogant. It's arrogant. Now I think we'd all agree that there are arrogant religious exclusivists, okay? That is undebatable. but that's not what is the heart of this accusation. This charge is making the deeper assertion that any claim to absolute truth, no matter how humbly it's wrapped, is itself a posture of arrogance. And the cultural sensibility is summed up perhaps most vividly in the great philosophical work of our age, Star Wars. You guys recall, I think it's episode three, so this is the prequel. Do you guys recall when when Master Obi-Wan finally discovered that his young Padawan, Anakin, had definitively turned to the dark side? Do you remember that moment in that movie when he was in denial? It, it, it wasn't when he found out he was killing younglings. It was when Anakin Skywalker had the audacity to make an absolute statement. Do you remember that? Anakin said, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. And what did Obi-Wan say? Only a Sith a Boom, that's it. Only a Sith. Deals in absolutes. Appreciate that. Perfect. And that's the supposition of pluralism. Here's what John Cobb says in his book, Religious Pluralism The quest, quote, the quest for an absolute as a basis for understanding reflects the long tradition of Christian imperialism and triumphalism rather than the pluralistic spirit. So, the absolute truth claims of religious exclusivism is Sith-level arrogance, right? Here's what Christian pluralist John Hicks has to say about it. Quote, Natural pride, despite its positive contribution to human life, becomes harmful when it is evaluated, when it is elevated to the level of dogma and is built into the belief system of a religious community. This happens when its sense of its own validity and worth is expressed in doctrines implying an exclusive or decisively superior access to the truth, or the power to save. Unquote. So, thoughts? How would you respond to the charge that religious exclusivism is inherently arrogant?
1: Is that absolutely true? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a great question. Wow! Well wow, you guys are catching on. I appreciate that. And again, this is this is by the way, as a part of our apologetic task, we recognize that essentially every worldview that is contrary to the truth will, in some way, collapse under its own weight. <laughs> I think, I think your questions are are moving us that direction.
2: Is it harmful to tell someone they're wrong; it's going to kill
0: them. Yeah, is that arrogant? was
2: arrogant.
0: Yeah. Yeah, good question. Good question. So if this is life and death, then I don't think it's arrogance to warn or to admonish. Yeah.
1: There's an inherent arrogance in a pluralistic worldview too that assumes that a pluralistic outlook is the one global way to view all
0: the Yeah, outlooks. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that ironic? It's kind of cloaked in humble, it's it's cloaked in a very humble posture, isn't it? Um but when you take away the cloak, you recognize that I, who's 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 making the arrogant truth claims here, and again, you get to okay. Here's here's the irony of of Star Wars. Do you know what the most absolute statement in Star Wars Episode Three is? Only a Sith deals in absolutes. That is a, that is what. So 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 here's the here's the twist in the in the Star Wars plotline. Obi Wan Kenobi is himself a Sith. You guys probably didn't know that. <laughs> but he is a Sith because he just dealt in absolutes. Mm-hmm. So again, it is hoist by its own petard or falls into its own trap. Any other thoughts? It's
1: kind of foolish to say that truth is arrogant. If you think something is 100% truthful, you can't say something's
0: arrogant.
1: Yeah. No, this is entirely truthful as it is.
0: Yeah, and I think, yeah, like the point that he made as well, I think the biblical Christian exclusivism so there, there are there are iterations. Obviously, again, like I said, you can be very arrogant as a religious exclusivist, and so we need to recognize that by saying what we have is true. That everything that you can you can you can say everything I know is true, and I'm not going to listen to any dialogue. And everything else everyone else has is evil. There is an arrogant posture that's possible, but simply believing something is true as inherently ignorant um, is not just self defeating, but it's it's just a mischaracterization. I think on the other hand, actually, biblical Christian exclusivism, ironically, it, it demands a posture of humility, right? Because, guys, we don't, get it, we don't get the freedom to soften the edges or adjust the narrative, right? Ours is actually a posture of submission to what God has revealed to us and Jesus Christ and in his gospel is crystal clear about his exclusive claims to truth. I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me. Paul says there is salvation in none other but Jesus Christ. I don't have I don't have the authority to adjust that to make it more palatable, right? So actually my posture towards exclusive truth is one of submission. And ironically, we can't say the same about pluralism. Because let's revisit that story of the, of the blind men and the elephant. In that parable, who are the blind men? Do you remember?
1: Different religious leaders.
0: The religious exclusivists, right? Who's the elephant? God. Who's the pluralist? He's in there. Yeah. Did you know he's in that story? He's the all-seeing narrator. He's the one person in the room who can see clearly, right? Now tell me what's arrogant. To say, no, you guys don't get your You guys have your religion all wrong. Let me tell you, you guys are blind men groping around in the dark. I am the one person who can see clearly and actually recognize it's a single elephant. Again, the posture of humility is, is, a, is a cloak.
2: It's greater than God. In the-
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's the one who sees God most clearly, right? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Or we'll move on to the next one, I don't
2: want
1: to...
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right.
1: It also says that God can't describe himself, because in a lot of other religions, God describes himself to the people that worship him. Mm-hmm. Like in Islam, like Allah says that I'm the only God in Christianity. God says that He's the only God. Mm-hmm. So, like, if, if God can't be wrong, but they're both right, then they're both wrong.
0: Have you guys ever seen Feeler on the Roof? Yeah, my dad loved that movie, and so we watched it as kids. But I, I thought I love some of the some of the dialogue is just masterful. And one is Tevye. He's like the lead character. He's a, it's a Jewish community in in uh, like pre-Soviet Russia. And so the Jews, there's anti-Semitism. So the Jews are starting to get forced out of their villages. And there's this one scene where the, 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 the villagers are all gathered around the newspaper. There's one guy who can read, and he's reading about another village was evicted. The Jews were forced to flee. And then one guy was like, why should I care about the outside world? Let the outside world care for itself. And then Teviar was like, you know what? You're right. And then the other guy's like, we can't be blind to what's happening in the outside world. We need to be active. And he's like, you know what? You're right. And then a guy was like, he's right and he's right they can't both be right. He looks at them and says, you're also right. And I think that's the irony, right? So they're saying, yeah, you're right. You're right. You look at it like, no, they can't both be right. They are both contradictory. And we'll get to that. But I think that's a helpful observation. Um, here's what Tim Keller says. Or, or let, me, let me circle back. So, so John Hicks, he's kind of the poster child of religious pluralism. He's the one who made that statement about religious pride, natural pride that becomes harmful when it's elevated to the level of dogma. Here's his quote again. He says, religion becomes harmfully arrogant when its quote, when its sense of its own validity and worth is expressed in doctrines implying an exclusive or decisively superior access to the truth. And to that we say, thank you for sharing your exclusive and decisively superior access to the truth, right? Alvin Plantinga says, these charges of arrogance are a philosophical tar baby. Get close enough to them to use them against the exclusivist, and you're likely to find them stuck fast to yourself. And I think that's going to be the theme that we see throughout this. Um, Was there a hand? Oh, sorry. And then Tim Keller says, There's an appearance of humility in the presentation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to the kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. And I think that's the point you made. Now we're the ones who can see the room and we can see God. We even stand above God in that way. Uh, What about this? Exclusivism is disrespectful. So that's the next predominant charge against exclusivism. It is disrespectful, disrespectful to other religions to assert that they're wrong. Remember the quote from Wilfred Cantwell Smith? He says, except at the cost of insensitivity and delinquency, it is morally not possible actually to go into the world and say to devout, intelligent fellow human beings, we believe that we know God and we are right. You believe that you know God and you're totally wrong. Instead, it is argued a respectful posture toward other religions is to acknowledge their common truth. So here's a quote from a religious pluralist. He says this, and listen to the quote and ask me if and, and, and ask this question: Does this sound respectful? This is the alternative to the you're wrong, I'm right, disrespect of exclu- of exclusivism. He says, quote. Within all of the major world religions, basically the same salvific process is taking place. Namely, the transformation of human existence from self-centeredness to reality-centeredness. Each of the great traditions thus constitutes a valid context of salvation slash liberation. Each may be able to gain a larger understanding of the real by attending to the reports and conceptualities of the others. What do you think? Is that the respectful solution? Or does exclusive, exclusivism disrespect other religions with its claims? Sounds good. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? Would you say that exclusivism is inherently disrespectful of other religions?
1: Yes, but there's no alternative. If my religion says that Jesus is the only way to get to God, it doesn't matter if it's being disrespectful to you or not, if you believe it or not. The only way for you to know the truth is for me to be disrespectful. So now I'm at this predicament of, well, what's more important, for me to be respectful or for me to lie
0: to you? Okay. So you're saying there's actually something greater. I, I need to be more concerned about, less about respecting you and more about mm-hmm. the truth. The truth is more important than respect. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you guys think about that? I played into the guy, what if it's a the
1: life and death? Well, because of God being a God of love and wanting to reach out and say this, it's not that I'm being disrespectful, it's that I'm trying to offer you the water of life. Yeah. Um, And so, actually, an aspect, you know, the woman at the well initially maybe she thinks Jesus is being disrespectful, but as they continue talking,
2: uh, she realizes that he's he's actually doing the most loving thing Hmm. they could possibly
1: do. I also say that if someone accepts that there is absolute truth, um, their understanding of the truth being challenged, the
0: and then one given, which means yeah, no, and that's good. And I think again, I've I've mentioned this before. I've I've commented on this with my wife, but I think we've lost the ability to argue in our society. Like if you disagree, you disrespect. But I don't believe that those are necessarily connected. I can disrespect you and disagree with you, but I can respect you and disagree with you. you. There is such a thing as respectful disagreement. In fact, I think healthy argumentation means that I respect you and your position enough to listen, to understand, to take it seriously, and to interact, right? And I would argue that, in fact, pluralism is the disrespecter because it doesn't even take our religious beliefs seriously. I mean, imagine, and this is, some, this is like art. I'm not an art guy, but I'd imagine if I walked into the studio with like impressionists and realists and modernists, if I walked in and like, you guys, you're all, you're all the same. You all do paint. You all do canvas. You're really just the same. I don't know why you guys argue about the differences. I'm disrespecting all of them, right? And so essentially what the pluralist is saying is you're the same as I define you. Right? As I define your religion, you're the same. In the book, Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin writes, quote, to say that Christianity and Islam or Islam and Hinduism are just two sides of the same truth coin reduces pluralism to a patronizing posture by which we don't respect others enough to take their beliefs seriously. So what they're saying is by all religions are equally true. What they're saying is all religions as I redefine them are equally true. They're essentially claiming they know the religions better than their adherents do. David Clark notes, quote, asserting that all religions are true in some very general sense forces them to conclude that all other religions are false in their unique features. This is a concrete case study on the subtle arrogance of pluralism. So there are disrespectful exclusivists, but to disagree is not to disrespect. What about this? Exclusivism is, and this is the big one, intolerant. Intolerant. In his book, The Gagging of God, D.A. Carson notes a study done in an East Coast University where the most frequent term chosen in a word association exercise to describe Christians was intolerant. And the fundamental reason is Religious exclusivism. Here's, here's a pluralist. He says this, in the light of our accumulated knowledge of the other great world faiths, religious exclusivism has become unacceptable to all except a minority of dogmatic diehards. What do you think? So, so the, the
2: complaint is that religious exclusivism is intolerant, Wow.
0: That's a good question. It's a good question.
2: It's self contradicting. Like to
1: say that our pluralistic view is the only acceptable one kind of turns their argument back on itself. At least that's how I
2: process it.
0: No, I think think you're exactly right. It's like trying to say that there is no objective truth, like
2: there's just your truth and my truth. Then you ask how
0: do you know that statement is even true to begin with
2: yeah is that true <laughs> yeah yeah and I think something I've encountered is someone um at my work they were saying you know like I think if you knew God you would understand that he's not petty enough to care if you're gay or not mm. and so I think the intolerance they're putting on God which I think we have to admit that God is intolerant of certain things. So I don't know how that exactly plays into this, but there is a in a sense, in a way, that like God is intolerant of certain things. And so the label intolerant, while maybe it's misplaced, um they, some people do see that in our in our faith because our God does not tolerant. certain
0: things. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I appreciate that. We'll circle around, I think that's helpful.
2: And she she is right. I think there is a degree to where if you hold an explicit claim, you are intolerant. Mm-hmm. But it's in Christianity we tell you that we don't go against flesh and multiple, but against punishment and sins. So we are intolerant these sins and sin, but actually because I'm intolerant, we have to be tolerant and accepting.
0: Yeah, it's good. Sometimes it's helpful to
1: verify that, you know, for instance, that the Crusades were not uh, Christian. And as a Christian, I'm actually forbidden by my faith to, you know, to force you to. Live.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I can try to persuade you.
0: Yeah. No, that's a good one. One of the I don't know if we'll get to it, but the last one is that re, that exclusivism is violent, inherently violent. And I yeah. Um. There's a book that I was really helped by when I was your age when I was in college and coming out of college. And it's the book called Tactics by Greg Kokel. And he's really helpful at forcing people to come out from behind their labels by asking questions. And one of the most helpful tools in your toolbox would be the question, what do you mean by that? Because it forces people who like to hide behind words to actually define their terms. And what you'll find is most people just know the label, but they don't know what they mean. They don't even know what they're talking about. So for example, when someone says you're intolerant, a helpful rebut would not to be to get offended and be like, no, you're intolerant, but would actually to be, oh, well, I appreciate your, your insight. What do you mean by intolerant? And the reason I say that is because intolerance has, over time, uh, experienced a transformation of meaning. The true definition of intolerance is to accept the person even though you don't accept their position. But in today's cultural moment, tolerance means to accept not just the person, but also to accept their position. And that is, in fact, ironically, to tolerate someone necessi- demands that you disagree with them. You realize that? So when I tolerate you, it means that even though't even though we disagree, I still respect you as a person. I still respect your position and your, your right to exist and to hold that position even though I disagree. Okay, that's tolerance. But they would argue that tolerance is instead to accept the worldview, accept the position, and the whole, you know, the the whole nine yards. Do you guys understand that? That's the subtle shift. But ironically, as was mentioned already, even by their definition, they fail because they don't tolerate my position. so so this author called those who hold to exclusivism a minority of dogmatic diehards. Ironically, globally, there's about five billion religious exclusivism exclusivists walking this planet. So do you know who the minority of dogmatic diehards are? It's the pluralist. <laughs> And they are as exclusive as any other position, right? Because if you boil down their very accommodating and humble garment, they're saying, I'm right and you're wrong. They're saying you're wrong to 5 billion people. So again, I think they fall into their own trap. Um, Yeah, that's all I had to say on that. So any other thoughts on the intolerance? Uh, D.A. Carson is helpful. Uh, he wrote a book, The Intolerance of Tolerance. And I think the, the label speaks for itself.
1: Here's one thought something that I, I share fairly often that I think fits right in this. a little different way of looking at it. Same thing. In individual in interactions with people, I've noticed that, you know, this thing is, is almost impossible for most
2: people. Yeah. So keeping that for and
1: emphasizing
0: keep that functional because yeah. I have to listen to not
1: to in um, so if you talk about time so framing it, it's a thing to um, use tolerating the the person, but not tolerating the idea, and it's, it's become tolerating both, yeah. but keeping it at its fundamental, which is tolerating the person, or in, the, in our case of, of the Christian messages, loving the person, yeah. and hating the sin. That's impossible outside of Christ.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and in all the interactions with, with religious uh, folks of different stripes, they don't have that. that. That concept is only in Christ to be able to. Yeah love someone who is a sinner and hate their sin it's it's humanly impossible
0: yeah to do that no yeah i appreciate that i think maybe to riff off of both of what you guys mentioned about the weight of what we believe if we really believe it and as a christian i'm called to do more than tolerate my neighbor right i'm called to love my neighbor and so that means if i believe that they are in danger if i believe that they're walking a path of destruction um, I will love them more than I love comfort, more than I love preserving a relationship to tell them the truth, right? What we wanna know, you don't want a doctor who's like, oh, I'm, I'm not gonna tell them that, they're, that they have this illness because it'll upset them. So I'm gonna just say, they're fine, yeah. No, you want a doctor to tell them the truth. And if it is something that is that, that you know, the, you know this, the answer, then really our call is to do more than tolerate. But like you said, we're, we're called to love them love them enough to, to disagree. Yeah. Here's another one. Exclusivism is irrational. So this is an intent intellectual argument. It is irrational. Typically the charge is based on the premise that belief without propositional evidence. So if you believe something without propositional evidence, you're irrational. Here's what Joseph Renzo says. He calls it intellectually dishonest. Uh, but the argument is that since any given expression of religious exclusivism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, etc., since any expression of religious exclusivism lacks definitive propositional evidence, it is unwarranted. Here's what Gary Gutting says Believers have no right to maintain their belief without justification. If they do so, they're guilty of epistemic egoism. So that's just like fancy verbiage for their. They're intellectually arrogant. To hold, to maintain a belief without justification. So it's irrational for you to believe something that has no propositional evidence.
2: That actually reminds me of one guy, at Tolle, who made a similar argument. And his basis that I've read all the world religions and studied them thoroughly. And I personally concluded that they're all saying the same thing. So I uh, would say it sounds more the pluralist argument that in that which you just read, mm-hmm. it sounds more intellectually arrogant to say that you really study every single religion. Mm-hmm. you included that Islam and Christ, Christians and Judaism are saying the same thing about one person
0: Jesus. Yeah. That's where I find it hard to believe that I'm one being arrogant that Yeah, without evidence. Yeah, I appreciate
1: that. It's far more rational to like ignore the cl- exclusive claims of any religion if you have five religions and they all claim to be the only way to God, you're being irrational by saying they're all the same.
0: Yes, and I think that uh, the irrationality of pluralism is just that, right? We're not talking about the tusk and the tail of an elephant. I mean just you, you realize that just the three major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and uh, Islam, they all they all make historical claims, right? They all say, Jesus lived, they all say Jesus died. But when you get to the resurrection, mm-hmm. Judaism says Jesus is still dead. Islam, oh, let me step back. Islam says Jesus never died, replaced with Judas, I think is, is, is the argument.
2: They, is it they, never died? They say that he swapped places with the sun that looked the
0: most like him. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So they, they would fundamentally deny that Jesus died. Uh, At least on, the cross. on the cross. Judaism would deny that he rose, and then Christianity would say he died and he rose. And here's the point. Again, they can't all be right. They could theoretically all be wrong, but they can't all be right. So to say that they're all right is itself irrational, right? But I think there's an even deeper thing. Yeah. It's again, it's, it's, have asked them like, what objective evidence do you have that was? Yeah, yeah.
1: Like they're demanding us to have some sort of solid empirical evidence. that well, then what do you
0: have? Absolutely, time. and I think you're you're touching on what I would argue is the presuppositionalist worldview. Um, if you've heard of apologetics, there's like evidentialist, and then there's presuppositionalist. Presuppositionalism, which I ascribe to, is that here's the thing ultimately, if you dig down deep enough, so you have a child who always asks, why, why, why? If you dig down deep enough, every living, breathing person that has a rational mind holds to presuppositional beliefs that have no verifiable evidence. Everyone stands on beliefs that are themselves, they could call it self-attesting, the constitution calls them self-evident, but they are not beliefs that are provable. Why is, why is the scientific method the standard for what's right and wrong? Well, because it's scientific. Okay. Why is rationality the standard of what's right? Because it's rational. Okay. Yeah. It becomes its own standard, right? And ultimately everyone stands on a, a, a presupposition. And so when we turn it, it's not a question of, well, you walk by faith. I walk by fact. No, we all walk by faith in something. And so to, our, to make this case that it's irrational, if it if it doesn't have propositional evidence, would then t- take the take the rug out from every single person, because everyone stands on belief that has no propositional evidence. Uh, yeah, good. The last one is violence. Religious exclusivism is violent. Here's what British philosopher Bertrand Russell has to say about it. He says religion. And he's thinking, he's, he's describing religious exclusivism here. Prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war. Religion prevents us from teaching the ethic of scientific cooperation in place of the old fierce doctrines of sin and punishment. It is possible that mankind is on the threshold of a golden age. But if so, it will first be necessary to slay the dragon that guards the door. And this dragon, you guessed it, religion. It's kind of violent, yeah. Gotta <laughs> slay the dragon. Yeah. It's kind of violent, yeah. Slay the dragon.
2: Didn't Descartes, who was Nathan, uh, he said, uh, you think the centuries before with God, bloody? A century without God would be bloodier yet? Yeah, and in the 19th century, Pol Pot, Stalin, and uh, I think it was now, didn't no. they? Yeah, they killed more people than all the 19th centuries before.
0: And you make a great point. I didn't tell you when this quote was uh, when he when he penned this quote, but it was before the what you just described. It was actually because we know we know how history plays out. They slayed the dragon, and behind the door was not a golden age. Right? It was a much greater beast. And
1: that's in that same vein, um, I was once asked. What about civilizations who went to war with each other and all believed the same religion or very close to it like the ancient Greeks yeah fought each other constantly before they united as one nation. Mhm.
0: So yeah was the cause of that conflict <laughs> yeah yeah and I would say that there are exclusivist iterations that are that you could say are his are inherently violent. But when you read scripture when you read the gospel and as you were mentioning earlier uh, what you see is the greatest violence that is recorded in Scripture is actually the violence against the Son of God who himself bore our afflictions, suffered injustice and calls us to follow in his footsteps and so I would say that iterations, distortions of Christianity have done some terrible things in the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus, in the name of God. But followers of Christ, with him as our model, with him as our Savior, actually would be the opposite. Here's what Rebecca McLaughlin says, violence is the use of power by the strong to hurt the weak. At the cross, the most powerful man who ever lived submitted to the most brutal death ever died to save the powerless. Christianity does not glorify violence. It humiliates it. And I think that's right. <laughs> Any other thoughts?
1: How many religions actually promote violence? Because, like, nowadays, well, according to the New Testament, Christians aren't supposed to use the violent methods of the world to further the gospel. I don't know much about Hinduism, but from my understanding, it's not a violent belief where you force your belief upon others.
0: Right. So how many of
1: these so-called violent religions actually Teach violence within their
0: followers. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Is religion the problem or is humanity, depravity, the problem? Maybe both.
2: That's what I was going to mention is that um, all the previous arguments you brought up for pluralism, the common theme seems to be that all their accusations are using a standard that they are actually guilty of in that
0: regard. Yeah. That's helpful. And and, and I got to wrap this up and I appreciate your interaction. This has been helpful for me too. I appreciate it. But what I just want to leave you with is that first of all, just recognize that we don't care. We don't care the soul. We don't carry the sole burden of proof. It almost feels like as Christians, we are the ones who have to give an account for our faith and everyone else is operating by fact. And so we carry the burden of proof to demonstrate, but in reality, everyone is walking by faith. Okay, so, so we, we feel this drift to try and soften the exclusive claims of Jesus because it's just not, cult- it's not politically correct, right? But when we recognize the inconsistencies of this pluralistic moment, I, I hope it emboldens you to, to take hold of your faith, to love others, to tolerate and to share your faith and, and, and resist the, the drift to try and soften the edges. And I think that's a posture of humility, not pride. Thanks guys, that's it. Appreciate your insight.